You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Just ahead of the Canada Day long weekend, BC Ferry says one of its biggest vessels will be out of service. That's right, a planned refit of the coastal celebration is taking longer than expected and it's already having a big impact on the busy Tawasson Swartz Bay route. Richard Zussman is at the Swartz Bay terminal right now and Richard, this is going to affect a lot of passengers. It sure will, Chris. Eight sailings already canceled today. Eight sailings tomorrow and every day until July 3rd. I spoke to one passenger. She says she feels like she's being held hostage. She didn't have a reservation and waited hours on board. BC Ferries is doing everything to try to make this comfortable for people, including misting stations to keep them cool. The question is whether people can keep their temperament cool as well. It's the coastal celebration, leaving nothing to celebrate. The refit work is taking longer than we had originally anticipated, so that ship is not going to be available for us this weekend. Mechanical problems creating some major ripples. The unexpected complications on repairing the vessel will keep it on dry land for one of the busiest weekends of the year. BC Ferries have now cancelled eight sailings per day between Tawasson and Swartz Bay from Wednesday until next Monday, right through Canada Day. Uh, we're going to see some of those impacts this weekend, uh, uh, on the long weekend when families need it most. Uh, I don't find it acceptable, but I do understand uh, the challenges the BC Ferries faces. More than 6,500 people with reservations have been rebooked filling up nearly all of the spaces over the long weekend between Vancouver and Victoria, meaning customers traveling without a confirmed booking are encouraged to walk on. For each ceiling now, we'll have about 50 extra spaces for uh, standby traffic. But we do expect that drive-up space to be extremely limited. There are no impacts on the routes from Nanaimo, leaving this as the best option for people to get on and off the island in a car in case of an emergency. But that line will be busy as well. BC Ferries will be adding hydration stations and kids' activities to both Tawasson and Swartz Bay to deal with expected long lines and to ease the inevitable frustration. Our current sailing is now full and preparing to sail. I'm just doing some work for the day and uh, heading home. Missed a couple waits, but that's all right. Reliability mostly is what's important. You know, if this is part of our marine highway and transit system, then we need to be able to rely on them. They need to be convenient first. And I think that, that those, those values have been kind of set aside. And it's not just the weights people are frustrated about. The BC Ferries website went down today. They say it's maintenance in part, but also because of high traffic volumes with people trying to book ferries based on these cancellations. There's even frustration around the food here at the terminal in Swartz Bay. Let's take a look right now live at the docks in North Vancouver, where you can see that coastal celebration being repaired. The goal is to have all the work done by next Tuesday, but the boat needs to be tested in water before then. This is a complicated procedure and it may be even longer, which will mean more cancellations and more things to complain about and <laughs> what's going to already be a very frustrating few days coming ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Richard, a lot of people love to do that for sure. Thank you for that. But yes, let's get a reality check on the reliability of BC Ferries right now. According to the annual report for 2021-2022, 386 round trips 
were canceled during that fiscal year. 66 of those cancellations were due to mechanical issues. 82 were because of what were called regulatory issues, which means there weren't enough workers available to meet Transport Canada's minimum staffing levels. 221 of the cancellations were because of bad weather, and in all, those cancellations represent just half of 1%, 0.49% of BC Ferries, more than 82,000 annual sailings. All right, now to breaking news. A major search effort is underway to find a missing 16-year-old girl who somehow became separated from her group during a hike in Golden Ears Park. Troy Charles is live with more on the efforts to find Esther Wang and where she was last seen. Troy. Yes, thanks, Sophie. We were updated here not too long ago by Ridge Meadows RCMP, and the search continues for 16-year-old Esther Wang. Wang has now been missing for over 24 hours after she was separated from her four-person hiking group early Tuesday afternoon in Golden Ears Park. Wang was with a youth group who hiked the East Canyon Trail to Steve's Lookout. Around 2.45 p.m., the group of four left the lookout to return to their campsite, but 15 minutes into their descent, the group leader realized Esther was no longer with them. Since then, search and rescue efforts from across Metro Vancouver and the Fraser Valley have been out in full force with boots on the ground and helicopters and drones in the sky. Esther was carrying water and had food. She was also carrying a cell phone. However, due to the remote area and lack of cell reception, the pings have been negative. And sometimes that's unfortunate part when when we're out hiking is that the batteries die because of the continual tried attempts to obtain cell service. So in this instance, they're making every effort to use any technology available to, to continue with the search, but they're very much reliant at this point on boots on the ground and, and resources of, of people actually actively doing those searches. Klausner says search and rescue efforts will continue this evening until dark, and then the situation will be reassessed come Thursday morning if Esther has still not been located. Sophie will be sure to keep everyone updated as the night unfolds, as we all hope for the best. Back to you. All right, thanks for that. Troy Charles reporting live for us tonight. The province says a move to allow pharmacists to prescribe medications for minor ailments is a big success. And now there's a new centralized booking system for appointments. As Aaron MacArthur reports, moving appointments online means patients won't have to line up at pharmacies. I was the person in line waiting for the pharmacy to open. <laughs> for Robin Rivers, um, access to a pharmacist it, it, been has been a game changer for her family's health care. The family of four lost their family doctor in 2019 and since then would often put off treatments for routine ailments. The only point I would ever go to the emergency room is if, there, if I knew something was very serious. On June 1st, she was the first patient in B.C. to make use of pharmacists' new scope of practice. Pharmacists can now assess patients and write prescriptions for everything from seasonal allergies to contraception. Since the beginning of the month, more than 25,000 people have gone to pharmacies instead of walk-in clinics. The first day we were able to offer the service, we had a pharmacy have 10 patients come in after 7 p.m. for access for their minor ailments when other clinics were closed or full. Starting Thursday, the program is set to become more efficient. People can now use an online portal to pre-book an appointment. 
From the pharmacy's perspective, though, the booking system also helps us to manage our workflow so that we can open appointments for the times of day that work for our team. Doctors are anecdotally reporting a difference in the volume of patients seeking help with these routine issues. The online system is expected to redistribute even more of these types of cases. But there are questions whether the province could do more to make access to primary care just as easy. According to the health minister, there are 3,300 more physicians practicing in B.C. now under the new payment model, which he says will result in more attached patients. We're uh, about 100,000 fewer British Columbians need a family doctor now than did in 2021, so that's improvement. People will be able to access these pharmacy appointments via a government website. Considering how high the demand has been for this service since June 1st, it's unclear just how many people will jump on the new online tool. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. And with an aging population, there's a growing need for assisted living in B.C. And a new report indicates a lot of work needs to be done to meet the future demand. Keith Baldry is live with more on this. And Keith, you have some new data that illustrates how rapidly our senior population is changing. Yeah, I'll get to that data in a second, Chris. Just want to remind people, we're talking about assisted living here. There's three types of senior care in BC, independent living, assisted living, which are almost the same thing, and then long-term care, which is very much different than the other two because it's basically all services provided. So assisted living, a bit of a mix of both. Isabel McKenzie, our seniors advocate, though, took a long look at our system and found a number of problems, and she's calling for some significant changes. First and foremost, we need more units. They Basically, zero units have been added to the mix in the last five years, just simply not matching our population growth. Protection is needed against large cost increases for tenants. In some cases, people are getting dinged with 15% hikes from year to year, not only rent, but services as well. And also, she's calling for tighter regulations. It's a real hopscotch of regulations out there. Not a lot of oversight in the homes. One thing that I think will catch people's eyes and probably unaware is the situation when it comes to these increases. And she's calling on the government to potentially amend some of the legislation that covers Resident Tenancy Act uh, rights uh, because people basically getting dinged with increases they simply can't afford at a time when their income is so low. Here's the seniors advocate. There needs to be uh, a review of that and an understanding about if legislative changes need to be made to include assisted living under Residential Tenancy Act protections, then that's what we need to do. However, if we discover, in fact, they were never exempted, then um, we need to ensure that operators and tenants understand the implications of the protections that they now are afforded uh, as it's recognized that they're under the Residential Tenancy Act. So there's more than 4,500 people living in assisted living. Average age is 81. The concern right now is cognitive decline is happening more frequently amongst that older age group. The average residency is about three years. And here's another statistic. Wheelchair use requirements for people in assisted living has gone up 24% in five years. So the problems are getting worse and the number of people entering assisted living is getting more and more. The wait list is getting longer by the time. So there's a sort of an urgency here that she's calling on the government to act. Let's hope they do. All right, thanks very much, Keith. Well, one day after another BC municipality banned open drug use in public spaces, Premier David Eby is proposing provincial legislation that will help all communities do the same. Grace Key has the latest on a problem many blame on decriminalization. When Port Coquitlam Mayor Brad West heard a drug user shouted expletives at parents and kids at a child's birthday party in a park, he had enough. If we don't step in with this bylaw, there is no way to stop that person from doing that. 
it, I mean, as crazy as it sounds, right now, without the bylaw that Port Coquitlam passed, there is no prohibition in this province on using fentanyl in a child's playground. So these are situations that happen in the real world on the ground. Port Coquitlam is the latest municipality to pass a bylaw prohibiting the use of illicit drugs in its parks and public spaces. It's in response to a three-year pilot project in BC decriminalizing the possession of small amounts of certain drugs, including cocaine, meth, heroin, and fentanyl. We're currently working with the Union of BC municipalities uh, through the Ministry of Public Safety uh, to see what tools we can bring to the table to support municipalities to address these issues. Parks were exempt partly because people make their homes there. There is also concern aggressive enforcement would marginalize drug users or compel them to use a loan. Uh, and so one of the areas we're looking at is a potential uh, new law, new legislation in the fall session uh, to support municipalities to make sure that we're sending the message uh, that these community spaces need to be available for everybody. Uh, but also uh, recognize the challenging balance and the, the public health crisis we're in. I don't think that this needs to take months. I mean, it, it, it's pretty simple. Summer's here. The parks and playgrounds are going to be jammed. Kids are out of school. Fix it now. Add parks and playgrounds to the list of prohibited places, and that goes a long way to addressing the concerns that exist. It's a move more and more cities could be headed towards as they struggle to balance public health and public safety. Grace Key, Global News. The province's port workers have issued a 72-hour strike notice with 7,400 members ready to walk off the job on Saturday. The potential negative impact on the movement of goods is huge. Travis Prasad is live with more on what some say is a disruption Canadians can't afford. Travis. Yeah, that's right, Chris. Roughly $800 million worth of goods moves through BC ports every single day, including at Vancouver Port behind me. It's about 25% of Canada's total imports and exports, and now thousands of workers who play a major role in the supply chain say they aren't getting the treatment they deserve. A critical component of the economy at risk of coming to a halt. More than 7,000 unionized port workers are ready to walk off the job. They've been without a contract since March. Talks between the International Longshore and Warehouse Union and the BC Maritime Employers Association have been ongoing, but just hit an impasse. This is a very concerning development. The Greater Vancouver Board of Trade worried about what supply chain disruptions at the ports in Vancouver and Prince Rupert would do to the bottom lines of businesses and consumers. This could be not just a temporary disruption, but a permanent disruption as we're already seeing some cargo being diverted to other ports around the world. The union says employers won't budge on its three main goals. To stop the erosion of work through outside contracts, protect current and future jobs from port automation, and make sure earnings keep up with the rising cost of living. In a statement, the BC Maritime Employers Association did not specifically address those concerns, but says we continue to be open to any solution that brings both parties to a balanced agreement. That includes voluntarily entering a mediation arbitration process that, if necessary, provides for a binding outcome via interest arbitration. So far, ILWU Canada has declined this proposal. 
If the strike goes ahead, one economist says it won't take long for plenty of jobs to be at risk. It will lead to potential losses in those industries that are most dependent on imported goods uh, for their production, as well as uh, everybody who's actually transporting goods from the port uh, to these uh, places of uh, manufacturing. And just as quickly, shoppers would have to cough up more cash for everyday essentials already impacted by inflation. To see the potential for a strike to, uh, to cause even further costs for British Columbians is very uh, concerning to me at a time when British Columbians cannot afford that. So we did reach out to the federal transport and labour ministries and they say they have senior mediators on hand working with both sides until an agreement is reached. Meanwhile, economist who we just heard from, uh, Werner Antweiler, says if there is a strike and it goes beyond two weeks, he could see the feds tabling legislation, back-to-work legislation, to get things moving again because there's just too much money to be lost in the economy. Chris. Let's hope we get a deal. Sooner the better. All right, thanks very much, Travis. Shocking new details about the state of the Stanley Park train. I don't think it's a report that any of us feel good about. The documents that show it was a potential danger long before it was shut down and decommissioned and whether it can ever be resurrected next on the news hour. I was thinking about my future. I was thinking about if I was going to be able to walk again. Snowboarder Brennan Nate bounces back from some dark times after a catastrophic back injury. That's coming up tonight on the News Hour. And a little slice of paradise preserved from development. Can you guess where it is? That's coming up later on the News Hour. First, though, it has taken us six months, but tonight we can finally report how the beloved Stanley Park Miniature Railroad became so run down that it failed safety inspection. A freedom of information request by Global News has uncovered serious risks to the children and families who rode that train. And as Jordan Armstrong shows us, the park board had been warned repeatedly the attraction wasn't getting proper maintenance. 300 plus pages offer evidence of how the beloved miniature railroad began to rot. For more than 30 years, the train had a dedicated maintenance person. But in 2012, he retired, and responsibilities shifted to the city's fleet and manufacturing services, a huge department overseeing thousands of vehicles. From the start, there were major challenges, as outlined in an internal memo by Department Superintendent John Pezzalesi. He writes, the vintage engines came with no documentation of any kind. Staffing and money were problems. Pezzalesi writes, there was little to no budget from the park board. Quote, we have discussed on a few occasions, late 2018, early 2019 with parks for future budgeting to no avail. We repaired units as required when required. I don't have a comment um, in regards to that specifically. Steve Jackson is the acting general manager of the park board. I'm not personally aware of any situations where we've gone to request money to maintain the trains in, in a more significant fashion where that's been declined. But by last September, the train was so run down, Technical Safety BC shut it down. The black engine was found to have excessive oil leaking on brake lining, an obvious fire hazard. The green locomotive's brakes were not releasing after being applied, while the red engine had overheating and radiator issues. I don't think it's any, it's, I don't think it's a report that any of us feel good about. More deficiencies. The track had excess rust. Ties were rotten. There were loose spikes. 
quote, spikeheads not contacting track rail, allowing movement as train pass over. As for the passenger carriages, TSBC found brake issues with every single one. This was operational just before it failed inspection, correct? Correct. So those risks were there. I don't, I don't disagree. As for when these rails might see revenue service again, it all depends on when the parts get here for the engines. The hope is they can have enough parts to make for one working engine in time for the ghost train in October, but more realistically, bright nights in December. We just want the train functioning. We want to see the smiling faces again. And because it makes about half a million dollars in annual profit. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. A Kelowna business is reeling from a significant theft and police are asking for the public's help. Early Tuesday morning, thieves targeted Kelowna, Yamaha and Marines, stealing more than a dozen flat-bottomed aluminum fishing boats. The crime was caught on the business's surveillance cameras. Police now looking at that video. The thieves accessed the site from the Okanagan Rail Trail and loaded the boats onto a truck. I think that somebody's been watching because they've been on the top of the sea can for storage for a while. It was some good advertising from the highway, but obviously that turned into a, a bad strategy. This was well planned. This wasn't somebody driving by and taking a chance and stealing something. They, they put some effort and some thought into this. The theft totaled about $45,000. Police are asking anyone with surveillance or dash cam video to reach out. And the owners are asking anyone who buys an aluminum boat to check that the serial number has not been erased or altered. Up next, a very costly kidnapping. Is there any way we can recover some of those funds? The crime that left Port Moody with a huge bill and has some calling for a regional force. And how Saanich is marking one year since a deadly bank shootout. No delays east or west at the Portman Bridge right now, but still seeing plenty of traffic further out east on Highway 1 through Langley. Through Carmack Cares for Kids, expert repair for your vehicle helps provide expert care for kids. Carmack is celebrating 50 years of collision and auto glass services. Choose the best. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. A kidnapping case that began in Port Moody has wiped out that city's policing reserve fund. The incident involved other police forces, which of course had to be compensated. And as Catherine Urquhart reports, that's once again raising questions about why we don't have a provincial police force. When a kidnapping happened in Port Moody April 19th, it prompted a massive response. Port Moody police called VPD's major crime section for help along with the Lower Mainland Integrated Emergency Response Team. The girls were all freaking out, yelling, he just kidnapped, he just kidnapped. The hostage was rescued in mission days later. It came with a heavy price tag, $400,000, which may drain the finances of Port Moody Police, even empty reserves. We are making inquiries with the province of BC to determine if there are any funding sources to help offset those costs. There are some certain funding envelopes, but they are not looking very good for us. Investigations such as the one in Port Moody are expensive for a number of reasons. So you've got these boundaries that you need to cross. You've got these memorandum of understandings that you have to have in place. They have the costs that are associated to this, which would include several 
officers leaving their actual work and having to work overtime on this particular file. Last year, a committee tasked with reforming policing in B.C. made 11 recommendations, among them transitioning to a new provincial police service. In a situation like this, I think what you would have seen is uh, rather than uh, you know tapping resources that uh, are limited or contingency funds, um, you would have uh, regional units that were able to be deployed uh, that would be all part of the same policing unit. So far, those recommendations have gone nowhere, meaning that hostage-taking in April has resulted in one very expensive bill for Port Moody Police. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. It is one year ago today that twin brothers robbed a bank and set up a deadly shootout with police at a Saanich bank. The suspects died and six officers were seriously injured. Today, the city's police chief is providing an update on his officers. Kylie Stanton reports. The sound of these gunshots marks the moment lives were changed forever. Oh my God, And for the officers involved, every day since has been a gift. This one-year anniversary means a lot to us. We had officers put their lives on the line to protect others, and that's exactly what happened. It was just after 11 o'clock on a Tuesday morning when two armed suspects entered the BMO bank at the corner of Shelbourne and Pear Street. Videos captured on scene shows this vehicle approaching the bank. As it comes to a stop, the gunfire starts, and a group of officers come running, exchanging shots. The two suspects, 22-year-old twin brothers, Matthew and Isaac Octoloni, died on scene. It was uh, one of the most horrific, horrific incidents that any police officer would ever imagine uh, to come across. The scene on this first anniversary, quiet. The road closed much like it was a year ago, only this time due to construction. An eerie reminder for the community, taking a moment to reflect. The whole fact that, that this kind of shooting could, could happen in Victoria was very um, depressing. Took us a little bit of time to stop talking about it at work. Such a violent act at that age is uh, really, really concerning. There was no formal acknowledgement of this milestone. Instead, Victoria Police shared this video on social media, thanking the public for its ongoing support. They were just so overwhelmed that when seeing the officers running towards gunfire and knowing that they, were, they actually saved lives that day. But lessons have been learned. We're looking to grow and expand in areas of health and wellness within the organization. Of the six officers shot that day, three have returned to work, two in Victoria and one in Saanich. While the remaining three are continuing with their physical recovery, the emotional one for them and so many others is a work in progress. We are growing, we are moving forward and we're getting stronger. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Saanich. Coming up, fear in the forestry sector. This is our home and nobody's paying attention to us. We are not heard. A global news series highlighting northern communities in free fall as an industry fails. And people are checking every drawer and pocket. There's a $70 million lottery ticket that expires in about 60 minutes.
traffic is moving well in both directions at the Patello Bridge this evening. Just keep in mind there's lots of construction slowing you down at the north end on Royal Avenue, Columbia Street, and Front Street. Today's Lotto 649 Gold Ball Jackpot is $16 million, plus the classic $5 million jackpot, two jackpots on every draw. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. For years, forestry was the main driver of the B.C. economy, but over the past couple of decades, 100 mills have shut down and the number of people employed in the industry has been cut in half. While there are many causes for that decline, it's had a huge impact on many small towns built around forestry. Today, in the first installment of a three-part series, Paul Johnson travels to the hard-hit town of Mackenzie. That's our only pharmacy now in Mackenzie. We had two, but we're down to one. Chris Dixon is showing us the town of Mackenzie. We pass the empty union hall that once helped hundreds of workers. A never completed Tim Hortons. The riding club with most of its stables now empty. It's hard to get far in Mackenzie these days without seeing the unmistakable signs of a community that's been in free fall. Late 90s, early 2000. Um, we had roughly 7,000 people here. Mackenzie's now lost about a third of its population and gone from about a dozen big employers to three. It's among the many interior towns that have seen their job base decimated in recent years as mills have been curtailed or shut down entirely. That's left towns grappling with the idea that our seemingly endless northern forests have now been logged to the point where they can no longer sustain the industrial base that was built to process them. So try to take in the scope of an operation like this. Right here you have a massive sawmill complex that generated wood chips that fed a pulp mill. This is the kind of industry that literally built British Columbia. Over the decades that these ran, many thousands of families were supported by them. Now the future it's probably going to be selling off pieces for parts and scrap. We are not heard. We are in the northern half of the province and nobody is listening and families are suffering. When we put out the word that we wanted to hear how ordinary families in Mackenzie were coping, so many turned up at the rec center that it turned into an informal town hall. I think we're in the middle of a mental health crisis here in Mackenzie. Like, I think it's a really, really under-reported uh, aspect of the forestry downturn. There's a sense here that this outcome should not have been inevitable. British Columbians were always sold a vision that our forestry industry was both renewable and managed sustainably. The abandoned hulks of a once vast industry now speak to a different experience, where people feel like political and business leaders have let them down. Well, that's my thing to the Premier. Are you selling out our town? Because if you are, you owe us at least the transparency of telling every one of these people here that that's what the provincial government intends to do. In Mackenzie, Paul Johnson, Global News. A threatened landscape in the B.C. interior is getting some new protection. The Nature Conservancy is protecting 61 square kilometers of land in the hills just south of Kamloops. They're called the Bunchgrass Hills, part of a dry, low-lying landscape found in the Thompson, Okanagan and Fraser River Basin. Grasslands cover 1% of the province, but the Nature Conservancy says it's 30% of B.C.'s species at risk. This is one of the largest grassland protection projects in B.C. history. It's four different parcels 
covers a large area and actually connects with some of the other conservation areas that NCC has uh, in the Nicola Valley. The addition of this project brings the hectares that NCC's conserved in this one valley to over 10,000 hectares. So we, we are building a corridor and between us, the community ranchers and the indigenous communities in this valley, we do have a huge opportunity to build a lot of connection here. The protected land is home to threatened toads, snakes, badgers, and woodpeckers. The conservation project cost $54 million. Well, the province is expanding its partnership with a foundation that focuses on mental health and addiction support for youth. Dan's Legacy Foundation is named after a young man who died of a drug overdose. The foundation is being awarded more than $1.7 million to hire 10 therapists, two social workers, and four outreach workers. The foundation is also partnering with BC Children's Hospital for after-hours on-call support. We have to try and keep ahead of the waiting list. It's, that's the real important thing here, because kids that are in crisis don't wait well. We will make sure this is a working product so that young people will get access to a therapy after hours on weekends when they call, when the hospital calls us, we'll have a therapist there within an hour. Dan's Legacy Foundation works with about 600 young people each year. It's hoping to be able to help even more kids with this new funding. Coming up, a big air specialist adjusts to his new reality. Everybody is just coming together as like a fat sort of family here and we all, we all push each other. A snowboarder finds a new purpose after a paralyzing back injury. Plus the major hailstorm that made it look like winter again up at Big White and what that means for summer opening day. From the stories that affect us all to a look at what's happening right now around us. When BC needs to connect, BC turns to the source that brings us together. Global News. A freak storm has crews at the Big White Resort scrambling to be ready for tomorrow's official launch of the summer season. Big White living up to its name, you can tell, but unfortunately you can't really ski on it. A hailstorm slammed the resort this afternoon. Officials say one of the worst in its history. The hail and flood water made a mess of the resort's biking and hiking trails and forced more than 25 building sites to shut down for hours. Big White says crews will be working through the night, though, to make sure they're ready for tomorrow's summer opening. Well, we certainly had some wild weather in some parts of B.C. today, Christy. Yes, we absolutely have. We had ha have had some severe thunderstorm warnings in effect, but no longer. And now we still have uh, watches in effect. But you can see the you know dozens of lightning strikes, not only in B.C., but Alberta. Uh, lightning actually kills, on average, 10 people in Canada per year. It's definitely something to take seriously. So if you're in and around a thunderstorm, severe or not, uh, make sure you get indoors to keep yourself and your loved ones safe. This front we need to talk about, it is going to impact our region. And I'll show you how in a second. But first, let's Let's talk about temperatures. Uh, today was a hot spot across Canada in Ashcroft, hitting close to 36 degrees, but Lytton hit 31 degrees, not as hot as Ashcroft, and nowhere near what they hit two years ago in 2021. On this day, in on June uh, 28th, they hit 47.9 degrees. And what was exceptional about that heat dome that we saw is that Lytton broke the all-time hottest temperature on record in Canada, breaking an 86-year-long record 
and it broke it three days in a row. So June 27th, June 28th, and June 29th was, was exceptional. Here's a quick look at uh, the region. The front that is going to move across will just bring cloud cover to our region. We have a few thunderstorms expected in the interior, but for the south coast, it is just that, cloud cover. But there's a lot of humidity around, so not only are we going to see a little bit of cloud cover, but it's still going to remain hot and humid. So a muggy day expected tomorrow, that's for sure. We will see some breaks of blue sky towards the end of the day for the south coast, 23 to 25 degrees, but with that humidity, it could feel like 27 degrees. And there's your long-range forecast, still looking terrific as we head into the long weekend, but no rain in sight, so be super careful as you're enjoying the great outdoors. This is Spillamachine. I haven't heard of that other than I've heard of Spillamachine, but Spillamachine is new. It's just north of Radium Hot Springs. So thanks so much to Nicole for that great shot. Learn something new every day. Thank mm -hmm. you, Christy. Love it. Well, there are just minutes left for the winner of a $70 million Lotto Max jackpot to come forward. The ticket was bought not in BC, but in Scarborough one year ago. The rightful owner has about an hour, 7.30 our time, 10.30 Eastern. What do we say, an hour? Well, less than that. To claim the jackpot or it will become the largest unclaimed ticket in Canadian history. Hundreds have come forward trying to claim the prize, but the true owner has yet to be located. And if the prize goes unclaimed by the deadline, it'll go back into the Lotto Max for future jackpots. Got to be in it to win it. I need to dig through my... I, like, I had a pile of papers, I put them through the shredder, and now I'm second-guessing. Were you in Ontario? Were you in Scarborough, Ontario? I, I think you had to be in Scarborough. Yeah. Good point, good point. <laughs> so it true. wasn't me, it wasn't me. All right, it could Squire. easily happen. You could just get like a ticket and uh, you just throw it out or you lose it. I know it I've done so. that. All right. Did it feel like a young hockey player hit the jackpot today? Well, um, the question is, did the Canucks hit the yes. jackpot? Never mind the player, did the Canucks hit the jackpot? They have a, a new defenseman. Vancouver Canucks are proud to select from Rogla, Swedish Junior League, Tom Willener. Why am I not surprised they went to Sweden again? Well, they did it last year, so another Swede for a first-round pick. Tom Willander is a defenseman who skates great, really improved this past year, but again, you can't really tell if a player will keep improving or not, but he will go to the NCAA next year, and now he's a Canuck. All right, also tonight, the BC Thrill Seeker settling into his new life with the help of a team of specialists at GF Strong. Well, the number one pick was a bit anticlimactic, so yes. let's just skip to the 11. We knew that one. Yeah. Um, yes, at number 11, there were BC players available to the Vancouver Canucks. Zach Benson was sitting there. Matthew Wood was sitting there. But as they often do, the Canucks went over to Sweden to get a player. Right-handed shot defenseman Tom Willander is the newest Vancouver Canuck. Obviously, the Canucks have had a lot of success with Swedish players for a long time. Willander is a kid who really improved this season. He's more a defensive defenseman, I would say, but he really does skate quite well. Maybe they see him as a guy who one day has the wheels to play alongside Quinn Hughes. He's the one who takes care of the defensive zone when Hughes goes forward, but that is down the road. He'll play at Boston University next season. Now, these highlights are showing Willander's offensive side, which is still developing, but the Canucks see him, I think, more of a guy who can move the puck quickly with his skating, 6-1, but not super physical, more of a cerebral defender, which means he's a guy who one day could be a key member of a penalty kill 
from the uh, 2021 draft until this pick, the Canucks have now taken six Swedish players in their last 13 draft choices. And I wanted to do this because 11th overall is not a spot that traditionally gives you a great player. Jerome McGinley was the best 11th overall ever. And here's a little trivia note. You may remember this. You might not. He wasn't drafted by Calgary. He was actually, actually drafted by Dallas and then traded to Calgary. Obviously, Carter, Kopitar, those are all forwards. The last time the Canucks picked 11th overall was also defenseman Michelle Petit, who was not bad, but not great. Okay. The last time a BC boy was drafted first overall in the NHL was Ryan Nugent Hopkins when Edmonton took him number one in 2011. Tonight it was all about Connor Bedard, the generational talent who has never failed every time he's moved up hockey's ladder. Now he is the face of a rebuilding Chicago Blackhawks team. And with the first overall selection in the 2023 NHL draft, the Chicago Blackhawks are very proud to select from the Regina Pats, the Western Hockey League, Connor Bedard. Yeah, the Regina Pats, but North Vancouver's Connor Bedard. Humble guy, maybe an incredible individual player, but he's also a big team guy. And since the Blackhawks basically broke their roster down right to the studs, it's Bedard. They'll build around just like they did years ago with Taves and Kane. He grew up a Canuck fan, probably hated Chicago at one time because he was a Canuck fan, but he's now a Blackhawk. And of course, he'll play for the Hawks this season. He's going right to the NHL right away. Top eight picks after Bedard. A little bit of a surprise that Leo Carlson went second to Anaheim. Some thought Adam Fantilli would fall there, but that's not what happened. Uh, once again, the Coyotes kind of throw everything off by taking Dmitry Simashev, and that allowed Philadelphia to get a shot at Matvey Michkov, who you won't see for three years because he's still under contract in Russia. But this guy is considered the second-best talent behind Connor Bedard. And BC boys, there's a lot of them tonight. Uh, Zach Benson of Chilliwack, I mentioned him, could have been a Vancouver Canuck, he's not particularly big, but he is a great young player, he's going to the Buffalo Sabres, Matthew Wood of Nanaimo got picked by the team that's hosting the draft, the Nashville Predators, and he's not from BC, but Samuel Honzik plays for the Vancouver Giants, we had a story on him this past season, he is now a member of the Calgary Flames, and there will be more BC boys taken, perhaps before the first round is over, certainly more taken tomorrow when the rest of the draft happens. There you go. Sounds great. Thanks very much, Squire. Up next, how a Whistler snowboarder is finding new hope and opportunities after a devastating accident. Well, now a story of hope that started out as anything but. A Whistler snowboarder left paralyzed after an accident on Blackcomb. His life was obviously changed in an instant, but as Krista Dow reports, with the help of his rehabilitation team in Vancouver, he's determined to get back to the adventures he loves. So I know you're very independent with this, Brennan. Let me know if you need any help. Okay. Things that many of us take for granted, Brennan Nate is relearning. Nice work. His rehab in stark contrast to the 28-year-old's former thrill-seeking life. Six weeks ago, while snowboarding in Whistler, he suffered a devastating accident while attempting a double backflip, a trick he's done many times. I had no feeling, nothing from my waist below. Right then and there, I knew I wouldn't have uh, the ability to walk again. Nate was airlifted to hospital. The fall had severed his spinal cord. I was thinking about if I was gonna be able to walk again, like I was just thinking the worst possible ideas. And once I got to the hospital and I seen my family, my friends, 
sorry. The recovery journey, an emotional one for Nate and his partner Terry. It was just very hard. I just have my wheelchair skills class later today. He's spending then, two months at GF Strong Rehabilitation Center. Gonna toss it in different spots. Learning how to regain his independence. Good balance. The beginning is tough because people have to learn to essentially grieve and accept the injury that they've had. Mental strength, mental support, social support are all key elements in how well somebody succeeds in their rehab and recovery. And while he won't be able to return to his former life, he's planning a new future filled with adventure. I am going to be able to go on a kayak. I'll be able to go on a um, parasailing boat. With a message that your injuries don't define you. I didn't think of being handicapped ever. I didn't think of the struggles you would have. And then it happened to me and I realized that like your spinal injury or whatever kind of injury you have isn't going to take away from your future. It isn't going to take away from your happiness because you can get through it. Krista Dow, Global News. It's a great attitude. Mm -hmm. Wishing Brennan the very best in his uh, recovery. And good folks at GF Strong as well taking care of him. All right, uh, Christy, final word on the weather. I think you'll be surprised to see a little bit of cloud cover tomorrow, but it's still going to be hot, uh, certainly above average, and we've got a great weekend in store for us. So enjoy, everyone. Look forward to that on Canada Day. Awesome. Okay, thanks for watching, everyone. Have a great night. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Good night, all.